You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast, from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, SpyCast brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns about SpyCast, or if you want to suggest someone who might be a good future guest, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Also, if you like what you hear, and even if you don't, please take a minute and review us on iTunes or whatever platform you might be listening. We're always looking for ways to make SpyCast better, and you can help. We'd like to thank, well, no one this week. There's no ads. But let me take the chance to thank our amazing AV guys who make SpyCast work and our communications team who gets the word out and helps us bring SpyCast to more and more people every week. The podcast you're about to hear is a little different than most of the ones we've done in the past. A little, let's say, lighter. Late in the summer, I traveled to Pasadena, California, to be part of Politicon, which is a kind of Comic-Con for political wonks. I was on some panels, moderated a panel, and got to sit down with actor, singer, and former Bond villain Robert Davi. I embraced my inner James Lipton as we discussed his iconic movie roles, which include The Goonies, Die Hard, and, of course, License to Kill. Uh, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, my name is Vince Houghton. I'm the historian and curator of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'd like to welcome all of you to a live taping, if that's not as a paradox, of SpyCast, which is the podcast we run out of the Spy Museum, where every week we bring you some of the most interesting people who are involved in the world of intelligence. Uh, sometimes it's directors of agencies. Sometimes it's actors who played Bond villains. Uh, which So we're super excited about that today. If you've seen a movie or watch TV in the last four decades, you'll certainly recognize the man sitting next to me here. Uh, Robert Davi has been in more than 150 movies and TV roles, uh, including some of the most iconic roles for someone like me who grew up in the 1980s. Uh, we're thinking about the opera singing villainous brother, Jake Fratelli in The Goonies. Villain, not villainous. Oh, villainous. Villainous. Villainous villain. villain. Yeah. yeah, you can say villain. Um, it, the, it almost sounds like actress to me for a second. A female villain. He's a villainous. Sorry. Yeah, no, that makes sense. I get that. Okay. Um, you also have the Vietnam vet, uh, Special Agent Big Johnson, and Die Hard, another classic, iconic role from the 80s. And, of course, uh, as Bond villain Franz Sanchez in License to Kill. And surprisingly, SpyCast has been on uh, the air for about 10 years. Uh, Robert, you are our first Bond villain that we've ever had as a guest on SpyCast. So we're very excited about that. Uh, on TV, he's played lead characters in hit shows like Profile and Stargate Atlantis, and has parts in just about every television show you've ever seen on TV. Uh, we only have an hour, so I won't list them off here. Please um, yes, uh, but anything you've watched uh, in the last 20 years, he's been on. 
Uh, he's also an incredibly accomplished singer, and I definitely want to add that in here. And, and not in the Vanity Project, an actor who thinks he can sing kind of way. We're not talking Pierce Brosnan and Mamma Mia, bless his heart. We're talking about somebody uh, who recorded an album uh, called Davi Singh Sinatra on the Road of Romance, which reached number six on Billboard magazine's top ten jazz chart. Uh, you know, and stayed there for weeks too. I mean, that's that's not singing in the shower. That's a professional. Uh, so thank you, Robert, for taking the time to talk to us here on Spycast. We're excited to have you as our first ever Bond villain, but uh, but also somebody that we want to talk some real issues with because yeah. you do take. Uh, life ser- more seriously than some others do in the acting well, world. Yeah, well, I mean, I think everyone takes it seriously, whether or not when they get involved in certain ways or not to expose some of their beliefs is another story. You know, keep it light sometimes. But no, I'm honored to be here and pleasure to... I haven't been to the museum yet, but friends of mine have told me about the exhibit, how great it is. Yeah, well, you're all over it, yeah. so we've got to have you I uh, guess so, come yeah. over. And, uh... <laughs> the so Bond this- villain. Yeah, so this conversation will be a little bit uh, inside that actor's studio had a baby with the International Spy Museum in the format of a podcast. So we're going to talk a little bit about the Hollywood world. Uh, Wait, let's then, pretend that that's for us. I know, it is for us. Thank you, thank you. Um, is that what's next to us? All right, so uh, despite your overwhelming success in acting, and again, from everything I've read about you, if things had worked out the way that you had planned from the very beginning Acting may have just been a sideshow, if anything at all. You wanted to be, first and foremost, a professional singer. Well, concurrently. I was singing. I was actually playing sports, acting, and then singing was also another huge uh, huge part of my DNA. So it was a concurrent uh, desire, but the singing was as strong, but I put it aside for such a long time. Well, your first movie was pretty extraordinary for somebody... Yeah. Who's a jazz singer. Your yeah. first movie was with Sinatra. Yeah, first movie I did with Frank Sinatra in 1977. And, um, you know, being an Italian-American, because my parents, grandparents were from uh, Naples and Sicily. And I always say in my shows and stuff that there were two figures in an Italian home, the Pope and Sinatra, and not necessarily in that order. And um, now you've got a Pope Francis, so he covered that base. <laughs> but but the, uh, no, his contribution not only to music, which was Picasso-esque, he had a Picasso's contribution to music. It was his social contribution. He was a very socially, politically aware, uh, huge supporter of Israel, was one of the first big artists to come out against anti-Semitism and racial bigotry. He wouldn't play at a, at a casino or a, a venue if a black artist wasn't allowed. So he hated bigotry of any kind, and uh, he became a friend of mine after we doing the film. And uh, I wanted to bring parts of him to people that they did not understand or know about. Uh, uh, you know, because you, Italian also, the mafia comes to mind, right? And Sinatra had that edge and everything else. So uh, in terms of surveillance, I know a lot about surveillance there, <laughs> let me tell you. <laughs> but, well, Sinatra is somebody that it's very difficult to emulate. He just has such a signature voice, a signature personality. It's right. almost like one of the untouchables for most people. Like, you just don't mess with Sinatra because... You can either sound like you're trying to imitate him mm-hmm. or you just fail so miserably in trying to be him. Right. It, it had to have, especially from an Italian-American who you looked at, up to Sinatra for as long as you had, it had to have been a difficult choice to make to, to record a major album of you singing Sinatra songs. Yeah, no, I was not... Uh, uh, that wasn't something that I, I really... Because uh, uh, I wasn't imitating him. And everyone covered... I mean, Sinatra, when he was a kid, he had 
posters of Bing Crosby all over his room. He was emulating Bing Crosby or Al Jolson or Billie Holiday or Louis Armstrong. Uh, so he had people that he was, he was responding to as an artist. And the same thing uh, for me for Sinatra and subsequently all those guys. It was the Great American Songbook, which was also the Shakespeare of America. The Great American Songbook is the Shakespeare of America. It's the golden age of American music. And it's the amalgam of the, the American experience from the black jazz and jump blues artists to the Irish, English, Scottish, Welsh, Lebanese, American Indian, German, Norwegian, Swedish that have been here since the Revolutionary War and a large portion from the sons and daughters of Jewish immigrants. You could say without the Jews there would be no great American songbook. So this songbook travels the world and has the uh, uh, ability to translate more than anything. That's why on my show I used to make a joke about no one's going to listen to Poker Face in 50 years but they'll listen to All the Way or they'll listen to one of these great classics and subsequently Lady Gaga wound up doing a whole album of the Great American Songbook with Tony. And so did Seal recently. Seal just did a new album. And it's the standard for artists to say this is the classical music of America. And it's in that spirit. It wasn't to interpret or impersonate him. There are a lot of guys that do that. And because I had an extensive background in opera, which he did vocally, he was the first singer to bring the bel canto sound to popular music which was a certain style of singing. Uh, it's called, it means beautiful singing, but, but it's a technique that continues the, the legato line of, of music and the, the portamentos, using all those tools, communicating in a, in a very organic uh, vocal way. Um, so he, he had studied that, he, and, and I knew that, and uh, so I, uh, and he loved opera. Uh, we talked about that quite often, but the, uh, uh, the, yeah, so it was never trying to, right. to, to, to imitate him, but I have a timber being Sicilian as he was. There's just something and a little bit of the swagger from playing the bad guys, you know what I mean? So they, they make the analogy some ways. Well, speaking of opera, because I think that's a great segue in this, because this is by cast, uh, and I should be moving as quickly as I can to talking about Bond or the work that you do uh, with Homeland Security and veterans and nonprofits, but I've got you here, and I want to talk about the Goonies for a minute. Whatever you want. Uh, because, because that, that's the yeah, I grew up. So you, 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 your character is one of the most memorable characters from that movie. And actually, I read a lot that you had a whole bunch to do with how the character turned out the way that it did. You know, especially the relationship with Sloth, how you sang to Sloth. That was yeah. something that you put in. And it's amazing to me. The Goonies is a great movie for people who grew up in my generation. But looking back at the creative minds that were behind it, from mm -hmm. Steven Spielberg to Richard Donner to Frank Marshall to Chris Columbus, mm -hmm. and you may have created kind of the iconic moment in that movie of the feeding of sloth. Mm -hmm. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, well, Goonies, again, when we were doing it, Dick Donner said this was going to be a uh, classic. It'll be like the modern-day Wizard of Oz. And I was signed to do Rambo, too. And um, at the time, when this came up that they wanted me to do Goonies, and I wanted to do both films. They're about the same. And, uh, <laughs> no, I figured, well, for, for an actor to be in an action tentpole film and a kid's film was a thing, but they couldn't work out the dates, and I wound up doing Goonies. Now, a guy like me, when you don't understand what Goonies is, you see the word Goonies, you go, what the hell am I doing in Goonies? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I'm not a Goonie. I'm a Rambo 2 guy. You know what I mean? But I did the Goonies. And in the script by Chris Columbus, the moment where Jake Fratelli 
it was written where I feed, first off, there were all these kids in the film. So I, and they had the pirate ship and the, the whole treasure hunt thing. So I knew I had to create something. I wanted the Jake to be a big kid, to have his own dream, just like the kids had a dream. His dream was to sing. So, you know, building the background of the character as you do. Nothing that was in the script. He was a counterfeiter. But I said, he's a counterfeiter, but he's an artist. And there's a whole bit, how can I create with those Smithsonian's piece of shit? Which was another line I improvised. <laughs> but the singing, I know you rush for time. No, no, no. The, the, we have all the time in the okay. world. Talk, talk, talk. All you all want. All right, so yeah. the singing thing. I had a feed sloth who was chained in, the, uh, chained in the basement. And I had to bring him this plate of food. And just put it down. And every time he went to go get it, I would then with my foot move it away. Sadistic. You know what I mean? Taunting him a little closer. I think it's just so sadistic. There's nothing there. So I said to Dick Donner and Spielberg, I have an idea. What? What if he's the only one that will listen to me sing? That this guy has a dream to sing, and the only time he can sing is that the brother who's chained in the basement, the mother won't listen to him, Francis won't listen to him, the brother, the mother. He goes, well, let me see what you're going to do. And I did it, and they loved it. Yeah. And uh, that then became a motif uh, in, in, in the film. Uh, so that's how that came along. I don't want, almost don't want to move on to Bond, but let's talk Bond. <laughs> um, so you Bond, are the James big baddie and License to Kill, um, which if you haven't seen it, uh, worth watching, uh, certainly for Robert, but also for an insanely young Benicio Del Toro, who plays the, one of the henchmen uh, for Fonsan. I mean, I can't believe he's like 12 in that movie or something like yeah, that. Yeah, he's like 22, yeah. 21. But License to Kill is a really dark movie mm-hmm. uh it, it's it's felix Leiter is fed to a shark and his wife is murdered mm-hmm. and it's considered by most critics to be a top 10 bond movie i mean even mm-hmm. including all the newer ones that are usually at the top mm-hmm. of the list but do you think it perhaps came out a little too early you're looking at in the middle of the cutesy roger moore and the justice cutesy pierce brosnan it's so much more like the current daniel craig's of this kind of dark features to it yeah i call it the father of craig those Bond films, because what had happened was um, several things happened during License to Kill. Uh, One being that uh, the feminist movement, and it's a political, interesting political dilemma because I think it affected America as a whole. I I call America, not to offend anyone, and it has nothing to do with sexuality or anyone who they love or who they want to love or anything else. It has to do with the attack on the both sexes, the men and the women, uh, male and female. It's a very interesting dilemma. That's another topic, but serious. And um, at that time, they were afraid that Bond became, was too misogynistic. And uh, they wanted to water down the, the, joie, the joie de vivre of Bond. That was one issue. Also at the same time, Timothy and I uh, had gone back to Casino Real. In Ian Fleming's book, Casino Real, he talks about how Bond and the villain are mirror images of each other and how they should be mirror images of each other. And we wanted to stick to that, and the writers did, Maybaum and Michael Wilson, who finished writing the script because of the writer's strike. And um, the darkness of that film, the film performed better than Batman and Lethal Weapon and anything else released that summer around the world. It just wasn't accepted as big in America. But around the world, it was the big film. Right. But it had that competition in the States. Um, and people thinking it was too dark, too dark a Bond right. film and everything else. Subsequently, X amount of years later, Daniel Craig 
comes out with uh, Skyfall and the rest of his films that are darker and more closer to what Ian Fleming wanted. And like I say, Dalton was the, the father to uh, Timothy, to, 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 to Daniel Craig. I was to uh, Javier Bardem. Well, that's the thing. Is, you know, you, as you, a Bond villain. You have an incredibly dark movie, but your character of Sean Sanchez actually had a glee about him. Well, the joie de vie. The whole, yeah, that it, was the thing. Because Timothy also didn't want to have, initially, didn't want to have the one-liners. Because that didn't, you know, how do you organically give those one? That was a little discussion. And so they were giving them to me. And then in dailies, they were seeing, you know, it's, you've got to have some of those zingers. And then there was that was capitulated to uh, then later on uh, being able to affect him like that and do that. But it was a, um, but, but, but yeah, I wanted to play Sanchez uh, as a character that uh, was a businessman. You know, and he was, he was in business for himself. It wasn't a villain. It wasn't anything else. He was justified. And if you analyze every act in that film, every act of violence is a response. There's only one act of violence that Sanchez commits that is, you could say, not justified, and that's to the accountant. When I say to him, time to start killing overhead. Right. Everyone else is in response to invading Sanchez's space. Even the beginning, Lupe challenges him, and that guy knows that she becomes a lover of, you can't screw around with Sanchez's girl. Bond coming into, and the DEA coming after Sanchez. He's going to protect himself. So everything was very interestingly done in, in, a, in a, so it was an interesting Bond film. So one of the things that we actually focus on in the museum, in the Bond exhibit, is not Bond himself, because not all that exciting. The villains. You know, I played Bond for the screen test. That's I want to ask you about that in a second, yeah. so hold that thought. That's really yeah. interesting. One of the things we focus on is the fact that historically you can understand a lot about what the world was afraid of and worried about by looking at the Bond villain yes, chosen during that time. Very good. And so this is a time period where you have Pablo Escobar and Manuel Noriega and all the. So how did you fashion this character? Did you look at real world events and how you created Franz Sanchez? Absolutely. Well, if you look today, what's one of the biggest threats to our nation? The MS-13, the drug trade? destroying the fabric of our society. So this is a Bond film that was done in 1989. And, uh, you know, again, in 1988, I played a Palestinian kidnapped by the United States government to stand for trial for acts of terrorism. So early on, just to segue some way later on into my political understanding of th certain world issues, was through these characters and the research that I did with these characters gave me a different worldview than the normal person might have because I wasn't just portraying him, I was researching the whole lifestyle and what was going on. Sanchez, uh, The Underground Empire, was a huge book at that time, and it was showing you the, the devastating effects of the drug trade and how it was infiltrating uh, America and the world. Uh, and um, I went to... Uh, I, first I went to the... You know, we didn't want to do a heavy, heavy accent, so I did a very subtle Colombian accent... Uh, I listened to the cumbia music. I listened to, uh, uh, I got a, I met the architect of Pablo Escobar's home in Medellin. And uh, he told me a lot of inner, inner workings of Escobar. And uh, I learned a lot of stuff like that. And uh, I put in the line, which I want you to put in the museum. Yeah. <laughs> you got to put in loyalty is more important to me than money. Because that mentality, that's what it was. And that was a line that wasn't in the initial script, and then I put that in, or I had asked, suggested that, and they liked it. Um, because it was his Achilles heel. 
I needed something to give that character an Achilles heel and his sense of people being loyal to him and that being frayed at. Bond knew then that was his Achilles heel and then started preying on that with everyone else. Well, that's what, one nice. of the things I really like about the character is that it's much more complex than most of the Bond villains. Mm-hmm. Most of them are very one-dimensional. You know, and other than talk about like, like Javier Bardem as Silva in Skyfall or even Alex Trevelyan in GoldenEye, who's mm-hmm. a former MI6 officer, Sanchez is really one of the only Bond villains that it's hard not to like a little bit. Mm-hmm. I mean, I watched License to Kill. Rel- I mean, I've seen it a bunch of times, but I watched it recently to, you know, to, to prepare for this. <laughs> and I find myself kind of like chuckling along with him. Yeah. And you know, he kisses the iguana. And it's a very cool character. Even when things are literally falling apart around <laughs> him, he's still very cool and like, yeah. you know what? Things are going to work out. And so is that you talk about making up those lines, like loyalty is more important than money. So were you setting out in the very beginning versus other Bond villains. Basically, how much of a Bond fan were you? How much Huge. did you look at the other Bond villains and say, I need to be more three-dimensional than some of the ones in the past? Well, first off, I was a huge fan of the Bond films as a kid. Who wasn't? Uh, you know, I used to see Albert R. Broccoli Presents. Bam, 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 you know, in the, everyone in the mirror, Bond, James Bond. You'd want to either be a Bond girl, a Bond villain, or Bond himself. You'd want to be in that world. So, always a film, uh, a film buff of those Bond films. Turned out that Broccoli, Hubby, was born in Astoria, Queens, where I was born in, Italian-American guy, then grew up on Long Island, where I was. Little did I know that years later, I would become friends with him and actually be in the Bond film uh, as one of the uh, villains there, as the major uh, bad guy. Um, the, um, I appreciated all the films, loved them. Uh, people in Hollywood, like producers, directors, other, all wanted to play Bond villains, they would look at the Bond films and the trailers of other films I was for action sequences to try to get what they could get from that film, that action sequence, still till today. I did not use any other performance. I went to the reality of the characters right. I was playing because that's then a facsimile. It's like in my music, the same approach to my music. Most guys will listen to a Sinatra record and try to imitate Sinatra without having any really vocal, you know what I mean? You can't do that and find yourself in the part. It's just then, you know, imitating something. There's a story out there that may or may not be true, but I thought it was interesting. I want to ask you about it. Is that after you'd done the movie and it had been released, that you actually got brought to a drug kingpin because they liked your role Escobar. so much? Escobar himself? It was Escobar. Oh, okay. Well, I just... <laughs> yeah. I was in Brazil, and a film I had done just had come out called Amazon. And we were in Manaus. We had filmed all the way in Brazil. And Manaus is where the rubber plantations were, the rubber barons. And they built this beautiful Hotel Tropical. That when Caruso came there, they, you know, so very plush and uh, amazing. Uh, and I had been in the deep jungle with just old monkeys and a Finnish film crew that was stoned on vodka half the time. <laughs> and I finally got back to civilization by being in this amazing, beautiful uh, 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 lunchroom, this restaurant. And I'm sitting there. And two gentlemen approached me, and they go, uh, Mr. Davi, yes. He says, oh, yeah. Because the Bond film had just come out in Brazil. And I was, you know, all the interviews and all that other stuff was going around. They go, um, fantastic. We saw the film. The Bond, oh, thank you very much. And uh, our friend would like to meet you. Sure, where is he? Have him come over. He goes, no, no, no. He says, um, he can't uh, come, but uh, we would like to invite you to meet him. He wants to meet and uh, I'm up for an interesting thing. I says, huh, interesting. He says, very interesting. He says, they go, yeah, you 
in some way uh, resemble your character, <laughs> perhaps. I said, really? He says, yes, he'd like to talk to you. So I go for it. They take me in a car, drive through the jungle, Manaus. I'm driving through the things. Now there's a thick, there's about 20-minute drive. Now we're in the thick of it. And, you know, this forest all around. I mean, rainforest. And there's an area that all of a sudden opens up like this. That, but the trees are attached to this gate. It's a gate of trees that open up in a single... <laughs> it's a villain lair. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a single, <laughs> it's a single driving thing that goes to this area that's bigger and then the house. And with guys like you would expect, you know. And I'm going, hmm. <laughs> this may have gotten a little deeper than I wanted to, <laughs> to myself. Uh, but, and they assured me, of course. So I go there and uh, I, um, I get introduced to uh, it's Pablo Escobar. And uh, we have a, he says, would you like to drink some aguardente? Aguardente is the drink of Colombia. And I was talking about the Pisces and the cumbia music and all of this. And he goes, you know, he loved loyalty is more important to me than money. And then he said to me, too bad I didn't meet you before you did the film. He says, there's a couple of things that would be fantastic. <laughs> I go, yeah. I go, what? He goes, what? He goes, well, in my house in Colombia, he says, I have it. In the living room, he says, we have a, a, we play Lulu card game and drink aguardente. He says, and then you hear, yeah, he goes, and in the middle of the house, we have a runway track, and the Pasofino horse comes, and we hear the sound, and we put everything down, and watch the gate of the Pasofino horse, the most beautiful gate. And these horses are very expensive, half a million dollars. This would be a good thing to show. In the, in the, really. And we're talking some more. And then he goes, he goes, you know, the personality of me. I tell you a story. When I was younger, I had money. I was uh, doing well. I wanted to buy a discotheque. And I offered them the money and they refused to, to sell to me. They didn't know who I was. But I said, let me buy this discotheque. It's doing well. And he offered double the money. They said no. And he said, you sure? Triple the money. They said no. And then he said, so what I did was about a year later, I built the exact same club across the street. And I charged no one for drinking and for entertaining. <laughs> and they went out of business. <laughs> they made a bad mistake. He says, this is the kind of mentality could be interesting. <laughs> so... <laughs> I mean, that was my... And then he gave me, so we talked a little more. And I'm thinking the DEA is going to show up. Like, like when Sean Pedd went to El Chapo, you know, he went there for two <laughs> seconds with a girl. I went alone. You know what I mean? So, 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 and then he gave me like a little envelope. This is for you. Thank you for coming and fantastic. And that was it. And in the envelope were a couple of emeralds that... We're given to my ex-wife. <laughs> well, I'm glad I asked that question. I, yeah, it's a funny I just story. saw a little tidbit about yeah. a, a drug lord. I didn't realize it was Pablo Escobar. Pablo Escobar. <laughs> so uh, there's a conversation going on now about when Daniel Craig finally hangs up his role as Bond, who mm -hmm. may replace him. And, and there's, there's conversations about there about Idris Elba, perhaps, or even a Jane Bond. Is it time for an Italian-American Bond? I think we can probably... Yeah, well, that, I had, that time's passed. <laughs> yes. But I, I, I will tell you this. Cubby Broccoli wanted me, and John Glenn, the director, great guys, 
they said, Robert, we want you to pick your girlfriend in the film. Sanchez has had a girlfriend. So I said, you know, I says, oh, great. Yeah, we don't want you to do it as Bond, we want, uh, as, as Sanchez. We want you to do it as, as Bond. Because they didn't want me to feel like I was screen testing myself. I says, oh, I'd love that. Good. So I got the tuxedo. I got my thing down. I was in great shape, 32-inch waist, 22-inch arms. I was, at that time, formidable. So, so now, now I go, I, I, I have the thing going on, and, uh, and I meet these actresses, 16, 17 actresses from around the world, to pick the girl that, you know, and I needed a girl that Sanchez, Sanchez, the character, would, I, I have a proclivity toward light-haired girls, personally. Sanchez would like a darker girl. So I picked Lupi. I said, this girl here, he would risk his life for Lisa Soto. And they said, uh, we think so, too. She's great. So we got to Lisa. But they're looking at the dailies now of the, all the screen tests. And they keep shaking their heads. And then John Glenn keeps looking at Cubby and finally says to him, he says, you know, Cubby, Robert would make a terrific bond. And Cubby goes, I think so, too. I said, stop bullshitting me. He said, no, no, many things. Anyway, but John Glenn tells that story on the DVD. So I, I figured it would be like people thinking, yeah, right, Dobby playing Bond, <laughs> Italian-American guy. But, uh, yeah, I would have had, of course, uh, Italian-American that grew up in England. Right, well, Probably true, Wales true. or Scotland. Um, I, I mean, I think Gladys Knight sings a theme song, but yes. was there any conversation about you doing something? No, they didn't the know I was singing at that okay. time, and I wasn't singing. The only conversation I had with them is a group called the uh, Gypsy Kings had just were just on the verge of being... A breaking, and I had seen them early on at a club, and I mentioned to them, these guys should do the Bond theme, the Gypsy Kings for this film. And I felt that that was a missed opportunity because they would have done a terrific, interesting, the whole thing of Gypsy Kings doing a Bond theme at that time. But the other, me singing that, no. And Gladys did a great job with that song. She's one of the great singers. Of, and, and also uh, the other song, there's two, License to Kill, and then at the end, who sings the... Who, there's the uh, end song that's great. No, I know what you're talking about, too. It's another major star. I'm trying yeah. to think of who it is, but uh, we should, I think there, somebody, there was room for a Robert Davi song in there. I just said. Well, eventually, <laughs> who knows? Uh, Bond yes. villain may do, you know, Bond villain sings. Who knows if I do a, <laughs> an album of Bond tunes? So let's break away from the entertainment side and, and talk about real-world issues, because I think it's safe to say, and this is, should not be a surprise to a lot of people who have followed your career, that you're on the more conservative side of the political spectrum. Independent conservative. Independent conservative. So Open-minded. What I want to ask you, and, I, and I, you know, to prepare for this, I read a, a lot about you and I saw um, something that I want you to talk about. I'm going to set you up the question. My political ideology was formed by several books I read when I was younger that kind of led me to believe what I believe today. Um, and I've read the formation of your perspective is somewhat similar. What, what were your political influences growing up? Well... First off, family always had... Uh, my dad didn't talk much about politics, but my uncle uh, had an uncle, Mike, who was a very politically conservative guy who we thought was the Antichrist at the time. You know what I mean? <laughs> How could you be for this one? How could you be for that one? Because I guess we were Kennedy Democrats uh, in a lot of the, the way. And um, growing up, um, there was... A, me and my cousin did Saturday Night Live. We did political shows. His son, my cousin Michael, we would do political shows... Uh, on, on our tape recorders, being political candidates. And I'm talking about eight and nine years old. That was our entertainment. When we would get together, we would have debates and talk about politics and issues and whatever it might be. And um, so there was the formulation of that. My dad, as I said, was not overtly political, but he was a Knight of Columbus. 
And he came home one day and he gave me two books. One was by John Stormer, who was a right winger. Some people called him a, uh, what do they call John Bircher. Yeah. But the book was interesting, called None Dare Call It Treason, written in the 50s, late 50s. And another book by J. Edgar Hoover called Masters of Deceit. He says, read these books when you have That's all he said. Just read these if you have time. No cramming down. And I picked them up maybe a year or two later and read them. Maybe I'm 11 now or 12. And I'm reading this. And they were cautionary tales in some ways. Now, there's no mistaking that the Communist Party infiltrated America. You all know that, correct? In the 30s and 40s and 50s. Do you know how deep it was? You know that it was deep, so deep that the studio heads, the studios, the, in the agencies, they, were, they wouldn't, if they read scripts that had a pro-American attitude or an, an attitude that they, they did not agree with, they would bury the scripts and propagate scripts that had a social agenda. That was happening so strongly. Sterling Hayden, who played the detective in The Godfather, that hits Michael Corleone, was the head of the, one of the head of the Communist parties in America. He was a veteran. And a, and a Not only a veteran, he was a veteran of the officer strategic services. He yes. was an OSS, OSS veteran guy. during the war. All right, yeah. But did you know he was a communist? Yep. Now, he called Ronald Reagan a one-man wrecking crew. Because Ronald Reagan went to a house, uh, when Ida Lupino, who was, let's say, the Meryl Streep of her day, had a political thing at her house. Uh, Reagan came to talk, and they were shouting him down, because this was really a bunch of communists that were talking. And they were shouting him down. And John Garfield, who was a left-wing guy, said, let him speak. And Reagan did. And subsequently, uh, Sterling Hayden called Reagan a one-man wrecking crew. He did many things. So Hollywood was embedded in a, in a culture. My teacher, Stella Adler, who was a brilliant woman, she taught Brando De Niro, she was the only one that studied directly with Stanislavski in the, in the, in the, in the 30s. She was part of the group theater, which were very influenced by the Moscow Art Theater. And this is a whole cultural thing you have to understand. That at, when the Russian Revolution happened, it wasn't just that. It was also in politics and the arts. So the artistic intelligentsia was so affected by that foment of creativity, even in film, that they adapted some of these socialistic ideas, ideologies, and Karl Marx and forward-thinking ideas. And the artistic community was trained in that thinking. So it, it, it continues to today. You know, there are two things you have to realize. There was the House on American Activities, and then there was the, um, uh, the jo Joseph McCarthy. They're two separate entities. Later on, and Ann Coulter's the one uh, who talked about this in her book, Daniel Patrick Monahan, a Democratic senator out of New York in 1996, let the Venona Project be made public, the spying. The Venona Project, the Soviets had a code that they thought no one could decipher from the 30s, the 40s, the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, 80s to the 90s. They could, well, it was. We broke the code. Monahan said, I want this to be made public, with a, and he died afterwards, but... In it, 99% of the people, Joseph McCarthy fingered as communist in the United States government and as high up as the editor of the New York Times, let's say the Karl Rove of the White House at that time, the Secretary of Treasury for, for, for Roosevelt, communists, communists, continued. Now, people could believe what they want to believe in life. I'm not saying that. But America had different principles, and we were being influenced. So these books, None Dare Call the Treason and Masters of Deceit, 
set the stage for what the agenda was, the social agenda, the educational agenda, to have America fall from within. The lack of assimilation from our immigrant population, the overpopulation of our immigrant population, the educational system being taken, and continued that. So this, I read this stuff as a cautionary tale, made me as a young boy a little bit nervous about, you know, the future. But little by little, I saw things happen. This is, and there were signs, and I, I can't believe it. I mean, I have five kids from several, you know, from two wives, but over several decades, my youngest is 16-year-old twins. And I was able to see the educational process, too, with them change, not only from myself from five decades ago, and, and, and the, the attack on Christianity in our country and Judaism or Judeo-Christian values. So seeing these signposts and seeing what was happening, and, and this is not to say we don't have compassion for people, and, and, and people, I believe people can love who they want to love, they can be with who they want to be with, but we have a certain responsibility. They call it the forgotten man. Well, it's the forgotten America. They forgot the principles of what this nation was founded on and want to reshape America into a European socialistic society, a globalist society, which I don't agree with. I, that's just my own personal point of view. Let me push a little bit back, and it's not 100%. Let's talk about... Push back. Push, push back a little bit. I'll have no, a conversation. Push back a lot. Go ahead. Right, push back a lot. Go, don't so be we're polite. Both, we're both the grandchildren of Italian immigrants. My name is Vincent. It's not it's, a mistake. But it's Houghton. Houghton. Well, Houghton. my grandfather is Vincent Trapolino. Well, why the hell did you use that? Well, I know, <laughs> I know. right? Um, <laughs> and, and people at that time period when they came over, probably around the same time your grandparents right. did, and people like Joe Petrosino and others yes, in New York the award were not liked all that much. Absolutely. And Hoover hated many of them. He was very anti-American. Absolutely. Well. So I'm not, uh, you know, J. Edgar Hoover as a No, I'm not saying everything. Certainly is there. So let me ask you about... But, but wait, I've got to respond to the immigrant population question because my grandparents... My father's family came from Sicily. I just became an honorary citizen of their uh, town, Torretta, in Sicily, near Palermo. And my mother's family came from Naples, in Nusco, Avellino, the mountainside. So they came at the turn of the century. My grandfather enlisted, my father's father, in World War I. He was wounded critically twice, sent back on the field in Europe, twice, almost dead. My father enlisted in World War II, day after Pearl Harbor Navy. His ship was torpedoed. He was in the water three days. But every 4th of July, Veterans Day and, 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 and uh, Memorial Day, he raised the American flag and put on his Navy uniform. The image of the Italian immigrant, and that's another thing that Sinatra understood. He gave, he gave the Italian immigrant a dignity. In 1886, there were more Italians lynched than blacks, than any other people in New Orleans. The New York Times in 1906 said the Italian is lower and dirtier than the Negro. The Italian understood the bigotry and the absolute, even in my own era, I remember feeling that kind of discontent. But we were never a victimized nation of people. The Italian-American didn't victimize themselves or stay in that victimology. A lot of what's being propagated today is keep them a victim. Keep them a victim. Don't give them empowerment because they use it to separate us. They use it to separate us. And that's the difference. Well... Yes, but as badly as people perceived Italians at the time, the United States still let Italian-Americans in. And I think one of the key differences between perhaps uh, my politics and your politics looking at immigration today is that 
Um, we're, 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 we were given the chance, our, our ancestors, unless we are Native Americans or African Americans, all of our ancestors came over to the United States looking for a better life and a better I absolutely and a way understand. From, for freedom in other ways. I understand that. I agree. No one is saying immigrants should not come in. Never. That's not the issue. The issue is assimilation. We're going to become Kosovo in 75 years because of the lack of assimilation and the ability to assimilate. What is happening in America today is that you have, look at I had a fish tank. My ex-wife got me one time. I had all these great, beautiful, exotic fish. I wanted to put some more in the fish tank. I went to the fish store. I got these exotic, expensive fish, dumped them in the tank, and the whole tank was dead within a week. Unless you assimilate those fish in the water they're in and in the water they're going in so they can assimilate into the tank they're going to be in and live together, they wind up killing each other and doing disaster to each other. So what I'm saying in terms of immigration... And I have a plan. I wrote about immigration in 2010 on Breitbart. And I'm, I talked to the GOP leadership who had brain dead. I don't like the GOP. I'm sorry. I had a plan for immigration. Same thing that we hear, secure the, the border at all costs, this, 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 and this. My difference is, the caveat with me, is illegal immigrants must learn English, must pledge allegiance to the United States of America, and for every year they've been here illegally, they must do community service four hours a week for the amount of time. Let's say they've been here five years wrong, so maybe two years they put... Community service in a rest home, in a retirement home, in a child care company, whatever it might be, rebuilding the inner city, four hours a week. And then they go on the line to become legal citizens. But that gives them the right to stay here. Don't find them. Don't, uh, uh, you know, so it's not about the, it's, it's the, the, it's the assimilation and too many at one time. You have to bring it, look at, there's a study, I think 60% of immigrant homes are now speaking the language of their country there. That's what's e pluribus unum. Unless you, ha that's the beauty about our country, and the cultural uni unifying aspect to our nation, right. right? Is being able to assimilate together and have a common cause and a common dream, and when losing that, and when you have pockets of this, it becomes Kosovo. It will become a disaster. Anyway, that's a, that's a big issue. That's no, a very and, big issue. And I, and I think what's interesting about you, especially, is that you. You haven't just started talking about this recently. You, back in the early 2000s, you were the only entertainer uh, who was put on the steering committee for George Washington University's Homeland Security Policy Institute. And, and the list, if you look this up, the list of other people that were on there are ex-senators, generals, mm -hmm. attorneys general, future attorney general, mm -hmm. Eric Holder is on there, mm -hmm. uh, directors of government aid, two of our board members were co mm -hmm. uh, Jim Woolsey mm -hmm. and William Webster, both former CIA directors. So how did you use your unique, let's, let's call it outside the beltway thinking, um, to influence the direction of this committee? I mean, what, 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 vo what voice did you bring to the table? Well, first off, I had met Frank Salufo, who was in charge of it, and it was his idea, the, the steering committee, Homeland Security. Now, three weeks after 9-11, I had, uh, as we're all watching television and seeing the red alerts and the green alerts, and we don't know what the hell to do, and everyone is saying, uh, just go shopping. And there were red alerts and, and orange alerts. And what the hell are we doing? People wanted to be involved. And I was coaching my daughter's softball team. And I was doing a show called Profiler a little afterwards. I went to Quantico and trained for three weeks there with a guy named Jim Greenleaf, who was number two guy in the FBI and was also with the CIA with Webster. I understood the culture a bit and, uh, through the show Profiler. And just from playing the Palestinian, remember, don't forget, because I did, that was, that was, uh, uh, Alan Dershowitz was the guy that actually, um, 
was the technical advisor for that, for that film. Uh, and now 9-11 happens, and I said, what's the missing piece here? The people, want, people were coming to me on the ball field knowing I was in the... Robert, who do we call? We saw this, we saw that, we saw this. People were concerned and they were worried. Okay. So I came up with a plan called Civilian Patrol 93. Remember 93, Flight 93 that said, let's roll? I said, let's pay homage to them. We need a more extended neighborhood watch. And just like my immigration plan, everything falls on deaf ears. I can't stand the left and the right in politics because they don't want to do practical... This is what I loved about Trump. The, 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 the possibility of someone finally being practical and getting stuff done. So what happens is, I talk about Civilian Patrol 93, and the, uh, I met with Tom Ridge. Civilian Patrol 93 was in each neighborhood. There, you don't know who your neighbor is. You don't know what's happening. At that time, they were having threat assessments every other day. The country was a little nervous. And we still had MS-13. We had a lot of things. Law enforcement communities didn't have money. They didn't have money to spend on their law enforcement. They didn't have money to continue different programs. So I wanted a volunteer force whereby you and you and you and you could say, I want to be part of Civilian Patrol 93. You get a little background check, and you were able to then get in touch with local law enforcement and the FBI, and over several weekends, get a certain kind of training done. And then you go in your communities, and you say, hi, I'm Susan Smith, and I'm Civilian Patrol 93. If you see anything, just feel free to call us, and here's this and this and this and this, and we'll be in touch with you periodically. And, but you knew everybody in the community. What does that do? Well, what was the problem? What happened in San Diego? Remember what happened in San Diego recently? San Bernardino. San Bernardino. Yeah. Remember what happened in San Bernardino? What did the woman say? I didn't want to be racially profiling. I didn't want to get in trouble for racially profiling. Had civilian patrol been around, she could have called them. They could have sussed that out with no intermediary. And it's not going to get any better. It may get worse. Who knows what could happen in terms of... So I just wanted something that helped our communities from the drug aspect and from also the terrorist aspect. So I came up with civilian patrol. Right. So they understood that Frank Salufa right. and the Homeland Security did a white paper to protect the critical infrastructure. It never had a lot of... Tra and then a lot of other... I had been to Jordan in 1993. I met with King Hussein. I had some ideas. I had been to Petra. So I understood a lot of, uh, a lot of the different issues, and I had a lot of uh, ideas and communicate, not just Civilian Patrol 93, but a lot of other out-of-the-think-tanking things, you know, how they right. may deliver a weapon system, what could happen, and then Internet stuff. I, I was asked to be, go ahead. No, I was saying that that, that even happens today in a lot of cases where uh, government agencies, especially the DOD and intelligence agencies, are red teaming, which is, you know, making people think like the bad guys, and they're actually using people who are authors, Hollywood types, people who think creatively because they tend to think in different ways than somebody who's been in government for Absolutely. 30, 40 years. Like there was an incident several years ago where a, a sewer system exploded in New York City and the steam went up in the air. I called up the guys. I says, just look at this. Could this be a delivery system? Could this, in five different cities across the world at a certain day, could this... Could a, could, a, could a sewer system or a steam system blow up and they deliver some kind of biochemical thing into the air? Oh, gosh. You know what I mean? Whatever it is. Because, so, so there was, you know, that think tanking thing. So I want to leave some time for questions, but I want to 
finish by talking about an organization that you've been involved with since the 90s also, and since its founding, you work with an organization called iSafe, yes. which uh, I hadn't heard a lot about it. I'd heard of it, but not enough to know. So you can tell a little bit about it, because I think in today's age, I mean, you talk about in the 90s, but now more than ever, yeah. in today's age, it seems to have a pretty prominent potential role mm-hmm. in, in moving forward and being very important for not just kids, I mean, even going up into the adult right. world. Well, first off, I was doing the show Profiler, and a woman, uh, Terry Schroeder, uh, approached me with an idea that she had. She said, would you come to Fork City, Utah? We have an idea, Internet Safety for Children. It was called iSafe America at that time. And I said, oh, that sounds great, because, of course, having kids and understanding the dangers of the Internet. And uh, I said, yeah. So I went up to Fork City, Utah, saw the pilot program, and I said, okay, I'll get involved. I then took that and got her in touch with the FBI, which the FBI then became involved with them, building the programs, went to Congress and the Senate and got uh, earmarks and stuff, uh, did, did a lot, of, and then finally that's been in, and then it even got in the Pentagon, overseas. Safe was the first internet safety program in schools from K through 12 to teach kids about identity theft, cyber terrorism, um, uh, pornography, stenography, the whole gamut of the dangers of the Internet, and uh, educate the parents and the children uh, on what to look for. And, and uh, uh, so that was early, early on, and uh, that, that's... Uh, well, I mean, it's incredibly f- forward-thinking. I mean, you know, nowadays cyber is on everyone's mind. Yeah. I mean, are, do you worry... I even did anti-bullying thing. Oh, I, had an, I had an anti-bullying thing where kids were afraid to report themselves, much like the politi- politically correct thing. But I said, you know, kids are getting bullied. They're getting... They don't know where to go to. They want to go there. We could have a, a, a and they then issued that thing where they're able to make an, a, an assessment of anti-bullying without a child being afraid of, of, of repercussions from uh, uh, being able to, to, to communicate that to the authorities. Do you, do you worry about, not to even bring up the Trump campaign, let's bring up the Trump campaign. So bring it, what you want. There's, a lot, there's a lot of people who don't understand a lot of the arguments about any connection between Trump and Russia, mainly because the cyber literacy in the United States is so extremely low. Even though this organization's been around now almost almost two decades, you know, do you see that as a, a problem that can be solved? You know, is it time to expand that iSafe idea from teaching K through 12 to a nationwide program to try to educate the public about cybersecurity and about cyber, have some basic sense of cyber literacy? I mean, so let me, my parents grew up in the nuclear age. You know, you're a little younger than they were, but they, 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 my father was deployed during the Cuban Missile Crisis. They understood what nuclear weapons meant yes. as a technology. We are now in the cyber age, the transformative technology of the 21st century, much in the same way nuclear weapons were the transformative technology of the 20th century. Do we need everyone to understand cyber the same way my parents and your parents' generation understood nuclear weapons? Two things come to mind. Secretary of State should have known better than to have private service. That was a big misnomer. This, that had nothing to do with why, why, why wouldn't that? I know a fr- my ex-girlfriend is a CEO, a CEO. she's a, 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 a general counsel of a major corporation. She would never do business on an unsecured line. This is like, you ask any, I mean, so, so besides the general public within our government, Cuba Aberdeen giving things to her husband. Sharing things away. I mean, this is crazy. And the whole thing about Russia, Russia, Putin, Pasha, Assange, Russia, Putin, exclamation point, Putin, Russia, and I follow up that with Putin, exclamation point, Russia, Assange, 
and Wikipedia, whatever it is. I, I did this. I, I, to me, it's the most ridiculous frigging thing. I'm sick of it. It's absurd. Because in 2008, 2008, China hacked into the DNC and the RNC. Did you know that? You can look it up because I said that to someone earlier today. And they says, I'd like to see some proof of that. And I, bing, right there. Look. 2008. Yes. They did it to Sony. It's going on. And it has to be taken care of. It has to be addressed. Because this is a big issue. But this absurdity of putting this on Trump and trying to stop his agenda over, over Russia is like, 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 how many people are in here? How many are Trump supporters? Be honest. Holy and crap. How, <laughs> how many are not Trump supporters? Okay. Right. About 50 50, surprisingly. Yeah. Now, the Trump supporters, did you vote for him because of Russia? Raise your hand. Anybody here vote for Trump for, because of Russia? Did anyone vote against him because of Russia? So this whole idea... Well, no, no, no. That's cute. I'm going to feed you to the sharks. He disagreed with something that ate him. <laughs> no, That is in the spy museum. That's, that's yeah. the, that is. Yeah. Loyalty is more important to me yeah. than the money you've got to put in there. So the, the thing of it is, is you have to understand that that's just a... Uh, to me, and it's a, absurd. who cares so, if he sold an apartment... Let, let That's me, what me, capitalism so, is. Robert, I've met Russians. I know the Russian greatest Russian pianist. I dated her. Am I a Russian spy? Is she, I mean, it's ridiculous. Let, let me interrupt you because I think you're actually making an interesting point that we can maybe come together on this is that assuming you're correct 100%, let's, I don't necessarily, but let's assume no, about what? Correct the, about the, the what? The fact though? that there's no relationship whatsoever that's shady between the Trump administration and No, no, let's say I'm agreeing with you. Let's say. Yeah, but I'm, wait, I'm not saying that there, there might not be an is there. Well, I'm not saying that, but I'm saying it's absurd. Even, it, 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 it really doesn't matter. Well, it matters in terms of national security only. Let me finish that thought. I, don't you think that the American public would be better prepared to judge that to be true or false if everyone understood this, the kind of basic idea behind cyber and the capabilities Absolutely. and all that. I mean, you talked about the 08 hack, which certainly happened. A year yes. and a half ago, the Chinese stole 30 million documents from the Office of Personnel Management, including my SF-86 oh, form. Wow. They know everything about me. Okay. And, you know, so these are issues that it's not going away. No. Right? We're going to be dealing with this Your laptop or your phone, don't be surprised if you're naked in front of it and somebody's, like, watching on the other side. They can hack in that good. And it doesn't take a foreign government to do it. No, it doesn't take. Yeah. Right. There was a, a seven-year-old that hacked into a, a voting machine a couple of weeks ago in Britain. Yeah. So yeah. It doesn't take much. And Trump got, Trump got criticized for saying that. He says, who knows if some kid in the basement is, you know, doing it. Or, or, but I mean, is it, but the, the thing of it is I absolutely agree with you. We need to have much more uh, safety on that. You know what I mean? And uh, the awareness of the dangers of, of uh, this, this is, that, that's World War III. You know what I mean? In, in a certain way. That could just think of shutting down our grids, shutting down our, our, our transportation departments, the dangers that are incumbent upon a lack of security. So if this does anything, they shouldn't be talking about Trump and Russia. They should be talking about the security of our, of our, of our, of our uh, Internet. And, our, yeah. uh, you know. and I'm really upset with how do you feel about Obama giving the Internet to the uh, United Nations? Obama giving the internet to the United Nations? Well, so I mean, they, 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 they made that decision to... The control of the internet was the, no longer well, in America's hands. 
What do you think of that? We didn't invent the damn thing. I mean, we invent ARPANET, uh, but the World Wide Web was invented by CERN in Switzerland, so it's not necessarily a fully American invention. No, but I'm saying the control of it at that time was our government that helped uh, right. develop we put, it. We put a but we lot gave it up now. We it. gave up our control of that to the United Nations. Now, that to me, we are the most secure country in the world in, in a way, and we're giving it to rogue nations or the ability for rogue nations to do what they want. That, to me, is a very dangerous... You know, it didn't make sense to me. Well, Maybe so I'm missing something. If you want to know more about this, Robert and I are on a panel together at noon tomorrow talking about future threats in World War III that That's you should right. all check out. Um, I don't want to take up any more time without opening up to questions. So does anyone have a question for Robert? Uh, if not, I have more, but this is your chance to ask about Goonies, Die Hard, Life, anything else that you may want to ask about? Yes. Right, yes. So before you answer the question, let me repeat it so that it gets picked up. So the question's about encouraging people to go into acting. He's, with the life that he's had, the decades of acting, is that something that you would encourage people to look at as a career? Anything you have a passion for at any time of life, I say it's on the table. Never, never, I say follow your dreams. And uh, I wouldn't say, oh, no, don't do it, it's difficult. It is. You're going to know that going in. Everybody knows it's going in. But preparation is key. Talking about this young man here. You want to be an actor? So preparation is key. Read everything you can, every book. Go to Samuel French. Get to the best school you can. Preparation. It's almost like being an Olympic athlete because you have to have the edge. Sure, there are flash-in-the-pan reality shows. You're a good-looking kid. Somebody could put you in something. But down the line, you have a statue. You could be a young Hamlet in five years at the Royal Shakespeare in London or somewhere. You know what I mean? So that's your preparation. The need... The passion you have for learning, for getting behind your dream. But you have to sacrifice. My daughter, the beautiful girl, beautiful voice, she wants to sing and, uh, and act. Yet she bought a, a Challenger, a Dodge Challenger, brand new. I said, Ariana, that's just going to make you have to do, you know, things for, you, for the car. I said, for me, when I was a kid growing up, the only things I was interested in was getting money to pay for my acting lessons, my singing lessons, and my rent. Maybe eat a little bit. You know what I mean? That was what I... I didn't give a shit about a car. When I came out to L.A. for the first time, I had a $99 Honda Civic. Looked like a shoebox. You know what I mean? Back then, square things. Then eventually, you know what I mean? You kind of move up. But I didn't give a shit. I lived in a single apartment in Marina del Rey, on the floor, with my books. It was on the beach, $400 a month. But I was acting and I was doing what I wanted with no pressure. You have to be willing to say, I don't want to do that. I don't want to do, I want to just act. And how do you get there? The lessons, the training, the commitment to that. If you have that, then of course do it. You could get discovered. That's another, that's another thing. But I don't give that as a, I give that as a, as a luck stroke. The other thing is preparation. Because you know, then that's in your hands. If you go in a room and you're the best actor there is, and you find a way, you know what I mean? Uh, Perseverance, too. I mean, you, you singing was always your dream. How old were you when that Sinatra album came out? That's recent. That's 2011. Yeah, so, you know, 2011. You, you, you wanted to be a singer when you were young, probably the age yeah. even younger than he is, and it took yeah. you a long time before you finally had a top 10 jazz album yeah, yeah. because you never gave up. Yeah, well, I didn't pursue it at yeah. that time. And then I directed a film in 2008 
I sang one song, and then I said, you know what, I want to now pursue the, uh, the singing. And then I did that. And, of course, having uh, uh, my acting behind me and stuff and a great group of people that were supporting me and, and believing in that dream, two of which are here, uh, that happened. So your, your ability to, to, to express yourself and the need to express yourself has to override any obstacle. And you might become a writer or a director or, you know what I mean, if you're in that art form or whatever it is, any of you that want to act, and even, I don't care if you're 55 years old or 33, you know what I mean? Um, and it's difficult. But it's, it's, it's something that, and it's, nowadays with iPhones, you can make a movie on an iPhone. Yeah. You know, my story a little bit, and I'll give this because it's a question that was asked, um, it, it, there was a th- uh, I had gotten fired from being a waiter in New York a place called Fiorello's across from Lincoln Center and I'm a young guy and I had just finished my classes with Stella Adler three years and I go shit that put a little fire under my ass right because I was making everything go okay with it but she told us don't audition until after the three years now that happened I heard about Sinatra doing this film, Contract on Cherry Street. It was all the buzz in New York. I told the agent that I was free- freelancing with, who became a big casting director on Broadway, um, um, Barry Moss. I said, you know, did you, he, he said, I submitted you, but Sinatra's using all his old friend. And on a whim, I said, where's the office? He said, Columbia Pictures. I said, I'm going to go up there. Now, he could have said no, but he said, go ahead, go up there. I said, I'm going to go. He said, go ahead. What do you have to lose? I went up there. The guard could have stopped me. He didn't. We didn't have 9-11. I said, I'm here. Where's Cherry Street? He goes, third floor. Do you mind if I go? Go ahead. Went up. There were a woman sitting on the desk, a girl behind her desk. I'm, the door was open. I says, hi, um, I understand you're casting Cherry Street here. They said, uh, yes. I says, I was told it's all cast. I says, and, but I wanted to come up anyway. They, she looked at me. Well, not quite. Do you have a picture and resume? I don't want to be that presumptuous. He says, bring one tomorrow. To myself, I says, screw that. I'm going to get one now. Ran to the agents, got the resume, brought it back. The guard says, go ahead. They're in different positions in the desk. They laughed and they said, thank you very much. The next morning, I get a phone call. We had active phone back then. You had to have like a pocket full of quarters that would literally, you know, rip through your pants. And you check your machine every, you know, couple of hours. Hello, Robert Davi, any messages? You know, no messages. You didn't have the easy. I did that. They called Columbia right away. I called them. They says, come back here. You have to come back, pick up a script. I did. They says, come back 6 o'clock tonight. They gave me a script. They said, read these scenes. I did. And the next thing I know, I do the audition. And she came out of the room quickly, and she says, uh, stay. Don't leave yet. I stayed for a second. She came out again. That either means they want you to read something else, or maybe it's good news. She says, comes out again. She goes, what are you doing this summer? I go, you tell me. And she goes, it's 99% yours. And the next thing I know, I'm... You know, playing a hitman, me and Jay Black from Jay and the Americans, two of the Sonatos brothers, for three months, making $3,500 a, 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 a week on a Sinatra film where I was making, you know, $350 a week as a waiter. This is 1977. Now, the business is different now. And Sinatra was, like, not a cheap guy. Pay the kid. You know, it was one of those. They could have given you a scale plus 10 where you made shit. But, he, but back then, he was like, no, pay the kid. Anyway... So persistence, belief in yourself, and benchmarks of things. Yes, right there. Yeah.
Yeah, this is, let me repeat the question. It's basically, talking about the Citizens 93, the idea of Civilian Patrol 93. Civilian Patrol 93. Uh, how do you prevent that from becoming, I will extend, I will paraphrase, and in Cuba, they have something called the CDR, the Committee for the Defense of the Revolution, where it is a person on every block whose job it is to watch the block right. and talk to the government about what's going on right. on the block. And so uh, this woman in the audience asked, how do you keep the parents from tattling on, or kids from tattling on their parents or neighbors who are having beef with each other? How do you take it and make it a positive thing and not have it go into what Absolutely. other, like East Germany and Cuba and others, these surveillance states? Yeah. Or, or Russia is a good example. So that's what you... So one of the things is to be able to... Um, the background check of people that are there that are going to join this. And the authority that they have is not an overreaching authority. It's just threat assessments on our critical infrastructure and the communities. It's not an individual witch-hunting uh, expedition. So they wouldn't use it to call up and say, hey... My mother's, uh, you know, the kids do that nowadays. My kids threaten me. My dad, I'm going to call the police. You yelled at me. If I don't do this, you know, he says, go ahead, call them. Let them come in. I'll call them, as a matter of fact. My daughter's disobeying me. You know, she won't get home at night. You know, I mean, kids do whatever they do. But th th that's not what this organization is for. Uh, this would be purely be a conduit between law enforcement and the community when there's a threat to the critical infrastructure and also to be able to help with this drug issue that's rampant in our nation. I think it's a big issue. It's a very big issue. You know, Simi Valley, California, is supposedly the heroin capital of America. Did you know that? Well, and I, and I think you liberals and conservatives alike can agree that there needs to be some kind of a conduit between law enforcement and the citizenry. There, there seems to be a disconnect today Well, look, that's look, higher than it's been in a long time. Absolutely. I mean, that was part of the Obama legacy. Or Unfortunately, not. But yes, but no, I, no, but I'm saying because what happened during Ferguson... And we all have compassion. We, nobody's innocent. But the idea to throw law enforcement under the bus and not say, you know what, let's have respect. When I grew up, Italian-American with this mug, I was stopped by the police like I was a criminal sometimes before I was known and even after I was known. Because they may have seen me in some film where I played a, a wise guy or a tough guy and said, wait a second, is this a guy on a list? Stop me and then be like, they, you know, they would be whatever it was. But I never disrespected them. I go, yes, officer. I complied. It's the idea of respect that I was taught. My neighbors were police officers. Edginess, yes, but I was taught. And I'm not saying that there's not issues. That's not what we're talking about. There are, but the respect, the, the climate in the nation in terms of respect for law and order respect for authority to some extent, uh, has, been, uh, has been frayed upon. So um, what was that? Was that the no, so, I mean, th this, this could potentially be that great middle person, exactly. the conduit yes. between Imagine the that. trust. Imagine if that was in Chicago. Yeah. Look at what's happening in Chicago in inner city communities like that. If people were able to have some functioning uh, 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 ability to connect to law enforcement because they're there to protect and serve. I've met more nicer cops and law enforcement people than bad ones. Now, I'm not, again, I'm not saying that they're not out there. That's something else, but it's a small segment of the population. But when you, when you propagate a div divisive attitude, it becomes worse, I think. I think it okay. becomes worse. Last question, then Robert's got a roll, but yeah, go ahead.
Well, the, the, sorry, the question is about are, are conservatives a persecuted minority in Hollywood? Well, two things. Conservatives, a lot of the celebrity conservatives uh, are frightened. I think that a lot of the below-the-line people are conservative, and they're frightened because a lot of the above-the-line people can control the purse strings to their jobs. My feeling on that, and I wrote, I wrote an article about it, that conservatives in Hollywood need to grow a pair of balls because, and that wasn't to put them down, but it was to try to send a message that the more you hide in the closet, the more the left will see that as weakness as opposed to saying, wait a minute, and then we can have a nice dialogue. And I asked Clint Eastwood and Norman Lear and Seth MacFarlane and a couple of other guys, both left and right, let's have a symposium in Hollywood. Let's sit down. Like Politicon. We should have it in Politicon to find out next year. Let's have some of these heavyweights sit down and moderate with a blacklist of Hollywood because I've been blacklisted. I don't, it's just how it is, okay? I've, incidences, I've got emails, I've got, I've got the thing, I'm not going to whistle blow on anybody, but it's happened. I've been, I was even told, you know, Robert, if you denounce Donald Trump, uh, this, this, and this could happen because I was such a huge Trump supporter early on. If you, you can do it now, he just did this stupid thing in their minds. He says, if you come out right now, I can get them. So-and-so wants to talk, so-and-so wants to talk, so-and-so. And it would be a big thing, would you do that now? And this, this, and this. I says, you know what, I'm not going to compromise. I didn't compromise then. But you get, I suffer from it. You know what I mean? I, it's, 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 my own manager said it. He said, you know what, I used to think maybe you would. He says, but it's true. It's true. And, and um it's, it's uh, you know, a show like The Blacklist, for instance. The, one of the creators, one of the writers, head writers, wanted me on. You know what I mean? Other shows like that. There's continuing thing, but there's a, there's a stigma that if you're a conservative independent, that you're anti-gay, you're anti-this, you're anti-that, which is not the case. I'm an anomaly because we have individual opinions. I believe that there's something going on with the environment. Do I know exactly what it is? My house is a greenhouse. I have solar energy. You know what I mean? It's, it's, I don't care who marries who and who falls in love with who. I don't care about that. I mean, so, so, th but there's a stigma that is a, is a us against them mentality. And that Donald Trump, for some reason, has been given such a divisive, that not him, but the reaction to Donald Trump has been so divisive that it's shocking, almost. Well... It's been an extraordinary conversation. It's just fun to have. I mean, we, we, we knew walking in the door that we were going to have a good chat. So please join me in thanking Robert Davi for taking the time to talk to us here today. Um, well, thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks, absolutely. Thanks for the and, work in the museum and what you're uh, doing, brother. Great. And, well, whenever you come out, we'll love to have you. I'd love uh, to be there. This podcast will post in a couple weeks. SpyCast is the name of the podcast. It's on iTunes, Spotify, anywhere you listen to podcasts. And uh, check it out. Listen to it. I'll see all the other ones that we do. And uh, we'll have you at the museum at some point to I'd talk about Bond and everything else. That so, would be great. Robert, thank you so much. Thank you, brother. Right, God bless you, man.